This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. The first two summer blockbusters I remember seeing in the theater were E.T. the Extraterrestrial the summer before I started kindergarten and The Return of the Jedi the following spring or summer. E.T. I saw on a family trip to Winnipeg right as soon as it came out and I remember later that summer seeing the giant lineup at my hometown movie theater in Shoneman, Saskatchewan as E.T. finally showed up there. And I have a hazy memory of feeling lucky to have already seen it, and a sense that this flick was sort of a big deal, whatever that was to my four-year-old brain. The following summer, when I saw Jedi in the same Prairie Hometown Theater, lining up with everybody else, maybe, um, a deserved point of pride for my hometown this theater is because it's still operational and one of the oldest movie theaters in Saskatchewan. Incidentally, it's also where I had my first non-farming, non-family, non-cabinet making job. So in 1983, when my mom took my brother and me to see Jedi, she had to read us Jabba the Hutt's subtitles. We are told, if Myths can be believed, and some of them can. We are told that the first true summer blockbuster was Jaws, released in 1976. And after that, movie theaters went out of their way annually to try to outdo each other with the next big summer event. Some years were a big deal, some not so much. Some of those summer blockbusters matter more for personal nostalgia depending on who you are and how old you are. I recall 1989 being a big one, what with Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Lethal Weapon 2. Or maybe my parents just drove us into town to see movies a lot that summer. I even think there was a Police Academy movie in there somewhere. In 1993, I was working in the aforementioned Shonovan movie theater, the Shonovan Plaza. I was working there uh, when Jurassic Park officially dethroned the mighty E.T. for selling out the most local seats. Uh, My employers told me at the time it was their first true sellout ever was Jurassic Park. In 1996, with Independence Day and Twister, I recall thinking that these things were more spectacle than form, and by the time of 1998's atrocious American Godzilla and glutty Armageddon films, I had fully embraced arthouse filmmaking or films with substance over spectacle or at least substance on top of spectacle, like that same summer's magnificent Saving Private Ryan which was the longest time I ever had to go pee during a movie but didn't leave my seat. Sorry if that's TMI. By about 1996 or 1997, I would only pay to see a movie if it promised both substance and spectacle, wonder and wisdom. I paid full theater prices for Private Ryan, uh, for the first two Toy Story movies. For anything else, 
that came out in the blockbuster category, I'd wait and go to the cheap theater. I think it was a toonie back in those days to go see something at uh, a theater in Saskatoon called The Rainbow. Even the latest releases of beloved creators like Quentin Tarantino or the Coen brothers didn't warrant paying new release prices or standing in line. If myself and my friends insisted on seeing some fun new release at full price, like ones that you know we wanted to see, like I remember seeing Fight Club, Starship Troopers, The Sixth Sense, we'd save our money and go to a quieter midnight showing so we didn't have to be surrounded by crowds. But even at its height, I felt cinema owed me more than I owed it. Sure, when I was five... I had as many Return of the Jedi playing cards, coloring books, and action figures as I could get my little hands on. But by 1999's Star Wars The Phantom Menace, the merchandising was everywhere. Almost, It almost made you sick of the movie before you even saw it. And then you'd see the movie, and in Phantom Menace's case, you'd be sick of it anyways. No, these events work when you're a kid. They work on you as a kid. They're aimed at you when you're a kid. All this fancy and flavor, and the film itself becomes far less important. It's awesome when there is all this fancy and flavor, and the movie is actually okay too. That's rare. Going and sitting in the theater because you have been told to became less of the point just going through a motion in an overall experience it's like opening presents in the midst of that three months of glittering monstrosity that is the christmas season it's just a thing you do on top of all the other glut that's going on i probably went to the theater more than i even had in my life prior in the period between about 2010 and 2019 because i have kids I saw me a lot of Pixar movies, then a lot of Marvel and Star Wars movies. I guess that today I can just say I saw a lot of Disney. Seeing movies with your kids is special, because doing anything with your kids is special. Eating a sandwich, watching ladybugs, kids make things special. In all that glut of the return to theater, few experiences stand out. Not one was on a movie's opening night. We, we never went to anything opening night. Some of them were great experiences. Some of them easily forgettable. Um, the Lego movie, I remember, is a glorious one. And it and Force Awakens were especially rich experiences because of the little boys whose wonder was palpable sitting next to me. In 2012, I saw Avengers with a group of students who had won it as a prize in a school-wide competition. We saw it in the ubiquitous and unnecessary 3D, but it was a special experience. I imagine the unique spectacle, the feeling that this was a rare moment of something new, if not something deep, but something new on the screen was like what I've heard it was like for people to see the original Star Wars for the first time in 1977. Across that decade of 2010 to 2019, um, with these two little boys, I saw many superhero movies of various qualities. None were as good as that first Avengers movie or The Dark Knight, but many were a lot of fun. Then, almost like you'd finished running a marathon, exhausted, 
I watched Avengers Endgame and its many denouements, and that was satisfying. But it was the end. Marvel hasn't been worth watching since, and both myself and my now teens have got behind on the constant glut of Marvel, Star Wars, Disney shows that Disney keeps churning out because we don't care. We can't be bothered. Endgame was a satisfying ending, a nice catharsis. But Hollywood never likes closure as much as it likes the chance to squeeze just a little more juice out of something and ruin everything that was almost good, almost art. The fact is that as complex as the MCU was, the main reason it succeeded was one man, not Kevin Feige. Nope, Robert Downey Jr., The last decade belonged to him. From 2008 to 2019, it was his arc of movies. Endgame was the finish of his character. And I know that saying it's a catharsis is elevated language when describing a superhero franchise, but it was a rare moment when an actor mattered in a blockbuster. Now, it's not to say that Robert Downey Jr. or... RDJ, as the Facebook kids call him. It's not to say that he doesn't deserve warm regard for carrying that franchise on his back. He's exactly that sort of rare celebrity that we should admire, because that dude's been broken. He has nearly died, he has been to jail, he has faltered, and he's gotten his life back. And he's also a good actor. He's good at his craft. And we don't really know his opinions on most things. He stays out of that public light that so many of these morons who are celebrities uh, go into. Celebrities get far too much undeserved attention and regard. Uh, Musicians and athletes and actors spout off on current events and theories they couldn't even have any semblance of data on. Most of them haven't even got a high school education. People whose claim to fame is being naked in a magazine feel their opinion on inoculations has any validity? Let's get real. Robert Downey Jr. is a recovered drug addict who gave it in every scene in those Avengers movies. Like, he acted. He was believable. He, the scene, mattered more than his own ego. Um, This isn't a superhero movie, and he was allowed to ad-lib most of his lines, and they were a thousand times better than anything that could have been written for him. Unlike those who could only pull off irony and studliness and sexiness, RDJ could convince you of real pathos in a scene with a computer-generated raccoon. That's impressive. The Marvel movies didn't deserve to be as good as they were, and he is the reason. He carried them. He's an actor to respect because he's a human being. He struggled. Any other actor will just get canceled someday and fail you. Don't like actors? This is a thing I've learned as a, as a former fan of Kevin Spacey and so many others. Don't like actors. They are human beings. They can't live up to your liking. So just enjoy whoever you see on screen. Don't follow celebrities. Don't have favorite actors. Even the royals have an education, and a few of them are worth noting. And you still squeeze out the Andrews and the Harrys and the Meghan Merkels and the useless ones. Um, Anyways, sorry, bit of an aside. But 
This nonsense of liking celebrities will only disappoint us, but at least Robert Downey Jr.'s success is the celebration of the man's humanity and his return from nearly dying. It was a nice enough decade, that 2010 to 2019, going to the theater once in a while, spending too much money. I even saw some art movies as opposed to spectacle, pure spectacle. Um, I saw The Joker in the theater, or Joker, I guess it's just called, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I didn't need to see them there. There's no purpose to spending theater prices to see craft. You go to see explosions. You go to see the Marvel movies. The Lego movie was awesome on the big screen, and the 3D was almost worth it. Once upon a time in Hollywood, it would have been fine on my phone, but I and I wouldn't need to spend 30 bucks on snacks. Then COVID happened in 2020, serendipitously at the end of that decade of film, and uh, the end of the Marvel decade too, uh, in my opinion. Everything shut down. Important things like schools and hospitals shut down. Restaurants, my God, bookstores. So yeah, movie theaters closed too. And of course, we were bound up inside. I don't know about you, but I sure upgraded my internet. And I'm not going to say who it is, but it's still not very satisfactory. Anyways, streaming has been dominating since long before COVID. Netflix killed Blockbuster Video when it was still it. Netflix was still a mail order Redbox. Then Netflix single-handedly established the era of streaming and binge-watching. The real trick for it now is to survive its imitators, especially now that the House of Mouse behemoth has awakened to the streaming universe. Netflix actually creates some pretty fine original content, and its films have hit the level of award-winning, some of them of art. The two things are not the same. It's still about its shows first. But its movies have become significant. But as I was saying, even before COVID, Hollywood studios doubled down. Like oil executives facing solar panels and windmills and electric cars, they refused to even face the thought of change. The revenues they get charging $20 a person for us to suffer the lineups, the rudeness of strangers, they felt was worth it to buy grand and greatly overpriced snacks to them was worth it, to have your seat kicked, to listen to people explain the plot of the film to each other out loud, to listen to them comment on who Chris Evans is dating right now, to risk having kidney failure as you wait out a bathroom break during Endgame. COVID, then, forced the studios to see how much they were missing. The comfort of my own home? Pausing the show to go to the bathroom or maybe even pick up the movie tomorrow? My own affordable snacks? Rewinding to see what you missed. Not having to be surrounded by rude strangers. There's no way a theater can compete with that. The things that theaters think they offer, well, they don't hold up. As COVID restrictions began to live the to, to lift, sorry, the encouragement to see it in theaters fell pretty flat. Why pay more? Then they implored that you must see the new Spider-Man movie in theaters because you don't want your friends to spoil it. Or you cannot go to it on opening night and just 
ask your friends not to spoil it. Good friends don't spoil things. And really, what's the big deal in spoiling with a movie like that anyways? It's a superhero movie. It'll be fun. But it's not like there's some giant twist that's going to blow your mind. Oh, two older Spider-Man actors are uh, appearing. Worst kept secret ever, guys. And not really life-changing. Rather than find a way to embrace streaming by offering first view of the latest blockbusters with subscriptions to their content instead of paying those stupid cinema rental download prices, the, the, the theaters try to force the theater issue. Typical. Rather than embrace the future, the big business insists on, on trying to double down and stick us in the past longer. In these days of loosened restrictions and belief that we're past the worst, and I don't know about you, but I've been assessing many aspects of how I live my life. Many of us have changed as people in some ways from COVID. Many of us even in dramatic ways. I find it harder to be around people doing things from which I derive no personal value. Thank goodness I love my job. The fact is, cinema... A lot like big oil and big tobacco at one time, in an era of of changing public knowledge and public values, cinema doesn't want to have anything but record profits again, and things as they've always been done, never considering how badly they've gouged us for years for subpar content and how they've tried to dictate how art works. I don't need to go to a movie theater ever again in my life. Oh, I'm sure I will at some point. It's not an absolute, but I sure don't feel any desire to. Home theater and home sound and home comfort and quality have reached such a point that the larger screen with its deafening sound and its vibrating sticky chairs no longer outweighs the huge cost, the rude other patrons, the stupid lineups, the timing around a a theater's convenience to show you the film. Theater says it's time to go back. I disagree. I argue we were starting to stop going before the pandemic, but the pandemic reminded us why going to theaters has become a waste of time. Not hitting us for $20 a pop will hurt the industry. Is that what you're saying? Well, where are they going to get the money to make these films? They need those extra millions to make movies. Oh, sure. You mean we might not be funding you know, pointless derivative blockbusters. We might have five or six fewer origin or prequel films, five or six fewer filler movies between main events, five or six fewer Batman freaking reboots, five or six fewer pointless and weak Star Wars movies, five or six fewer Fast and Furious sequels. I haven't even seen one of them. I'm not seeing an issue with losing those movies. When cinema dies, maybe art will come back. Maybe through all of this spectacle, the odd art house film will be viewed and we'll start watching this medium for what it was supposed to be, a visual form of art, rather than a big old commercial. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.